We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. I had this valiantly gifted teacher growing up, and certain lessons, object lessons, would stick with me even to this day. In fact, I hear his voice as I'm talking to my kids sometimes. And I learned such fundamental lessons such as the difference between near and far. Who is this sensei, this guru? It's Grover. Yes, from Sesame Street. And I realized there are probably people in this room who are too young to know who Grover is, which is so sad. How do I possibly describe this to you? Well, he's this hardworking, endearing, yet almost annoying, persistent, furry little blue monster who teaches little kids on the show Sesame Street that your parents watched. And I remember my favorite one, which rings in my mind with this near and far, is Grover, and I'm going to try so hard not to do my Grover impression. (laughs) It may leak out, but as Grover would stand right in front of the camera and plant his little feet, they even made the sound, and he would just yell. I'm going to say it in my normal voice. He would yell, near. And then he would just run across to the back of this big, huge room. It looked like a huge room. And he would scream, far! And then he would run back to the camera and say, near. And for some reason, in Grover's mind, this was a really complex topic. (laughs) And the viewer just couldn't get it. And it's like they were saying, nah, I don't know, Grover. Can you show me again? And so he does this back and forth, near, far, near, far, near, far. And he's getting tired, and he's breathing hard until he just passes out. (laughs) say, what are we starting with Grover for? Luke does this a bit at the beginning of these lost and found stories, which I think are one parable, which he actually says here now, the parable, singular. He goes in and out. He zooms in and out with with this frame of near and far. And I think... It's to set the context and to unlock the meaning, so meaning a little bit. So let's just play near and far a little bit, bear with me, in the first two verses. Just the first two. We could go through the whole parable, but we're going to go through the first two verses, near and far. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay. Let's just start with proximity. It's a little easier. Proximity to Jesus. Sinners and tax collectors. They start off far, and they're drawing near. We got this, Grover. And near for what? Near enough to hear. Near to hear. Now, how about these Pharisees and teachers of the law? They're also there near. You'd think they're in earshot. They can hear. No, Luke says... They're near enough to talk about Jesus, but I'm not sure they're near enough to hear Jesus. 
You see, it says, this man, as if they can kind of see where he's at, this man, in point. He's in eyesight, but not earshot. Near enough to talk is not near to hear. In fact, near to talk is not near at all. Relationally, it's far. Only near to hear is near. And even as they say this, I'm feeling a bit convicted. Am I near? Am I here to talk about Jesus or to hear from Jesus? Are we here to talk about Jesus or to hear from Jesus? Because that's nearer. Now, we're kind of already bridging there, but the spiritual lens, near and far, hearts, hearts, how far are they from God? Now, you can measure how far we are basically by how well we recognize who Jesus really is, and the same is true in the passage. Let's look at the spiritual lens, the tax collectors and sinners. Now, on first glance, these are the traitors, those that betrayed their people, those that are living wildly. They're sinners. Luke says it. They're far. They're the wander offers. But look what the text says. They're drawing near to hear. And not just near to hear in this one instance. Apparently, these kind of people are always near Jesus. How near? He receives them and dines with them. That word receives can mean accepts, approves, welcomes. Jesus welcomes sinners. That's a good little gospel snippet. But it gets even better. Now bear with me as I do a little pastor speak here about the, the, the original language. But that word receives, that verb, could be translated in the passive or middle voice. And the middle voice is sort of like reflexive. We don't necessarily have it in English always so clear, but sort of like I've given unto myself or something unto me, it comes back around. So there's an effect on the agent, not just those receiving. So seen in that light, we see by receiving these sinners, he's also giving of himself. Ooh, a picture of the gospel gets a little clearer. The nearness of God, this incarnation we call it, the nearness of God who is Jesus, is giving of himself in order to receive others. Sinners dining with them. That's gospel near. That's what he did on the cross near. Gave wholly and completely of himself unto death in order to receive sinners. Now these Pharisees and scribes, what about them? What's their spiritual proximity to Jesus? Or to God? Well, they should be near. It's their job. It's their position, their expertise. They know the Torah, the law. They're the ones that should be shepherding their people near. And yet these Pharisees, as Luke writes, and Jesus explains, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They're so far. Yes, they're far from recognizing Jesus as God incarnate, but they're even far from the attitude and heart of God. They're in judgment. They're putting themselves in his place, judging two things. One, the sinners, dirty and unclean, and to Jesus, how dare he be near those sinners, dirty and unclean? And if he's near to them, he's not near to us. How do we know? Look at their language. This man, not rabbi, as in other instances we do have the Pharisees saying rabbi, respectful term, but usually to trick him, to set him up. Not Jesus of Nazareth, like the demons themselves name him in recognition of his authority. 
not Lord, this man. And what an interesting parallel and maybe foreshadowing of our third story in this trifold parable, the prodigal son, the older son. So when the younger son comes back, if you don't know the story, the father just welcomes him and embraces him, and he's been out wasting his fortune and wild living and shaming the family. And the older son says, this son of yours has devoured your property. My property. I'm the oldest son. I was set to inherit that. My name. It's your name. It's my name, Father. This son. This son. Not my brother. This son. Here are the Pharisees. Not Jesus. This man. It's an indication of relational distance. A shove away. I do it. I do it. Sometimes my kids frustrate me, and I have that kid. Who's that kid? Sometimes I think it's funny. But I, we do this. We push away, and we find ourselves. Those people. Those people. Oh, I'm feeling convicted. Are we near to hear? Or are we still far to talk? Are we here to hear? Or to talk, grumble, and judge? And we could keep going through with this near, far, near, far, all the way through the story with the sheep that's near and then far and then near, and the coin that's lost, it's, it's far and then brought back near. And then the two brothers, one sort of far in his heart, and he goes far away, and he's brought near because he's near in his heart. The other brother who's sort of far in his heart but stays near, but is far in his heart. We could do it all the way through all the parables and all the Gospels. We could do it with the Incarnation. Jesus brought near the nearness of God. We are spiritual yo-yos. We are near, we are far, we are near, we are far, we are near, we are far, ad nauseum. Like poor Grover showed us. What do we do about it? Let's look at the passage now. The lost sheep. And most often, I think, at least my experience with this passage has been, okay, I get this. This is God showing his heart for the outcast. The broken, the humble, the rebellious. The non-believers, the Gentiles, whoo, that's me. Not just the Jews, all true. All true. But I'm not sure it's the main thrust. Yes, Jesus loved the outcasts. Yes, so should we. Good application, but not the main point. Or in evangelism, I remember being on the field in Central Asia, and quite often when someone came to faith or PRC'd, prayed to receive Christ, we would just, the angels are rejoicing, which is true. The angels rejoice in repentance. But I'm not sure a wonderful application, bringing others into the fold of God as God uses us to do that. But I'm not sure here that's the main thrust. I don't think it's just evangelistic. I think the main point is this. Because the sheep was in the fold, the sheep is out, the sheep is brought back in. The coin was in the purse, the coin is gone, the coin is brought back. The two brothers in the household, then they both go far, even though one's near, and they're both beckon back in. I think the main point is I'm the one he brings back. We're the ones he's constantly bringing back. He's the one who always brings us back. I, we, he. He's the one who brings me back. So why I? Why I'm the one? What's all this? Me. What about me? Seems a little bit egotistical. And what about those 99? 
left in the wilderness or the high country? I mean, why don't we even hear if they get home? Why don't we know if some steward shepherd was asked to even watch over them until the shepherd gets back? What happens to these? This just seems like bad math. I'm not a mathematician, but if we're all equal in terms of our worth before God, the good shepherd, he just runs after one and leaves 99, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I think it's because the 99 aren't the point. Listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, this is verse 7, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now remember how he starts this little parable. They say about him, this man, far. He says, which man? among you? Which one among you? Almost framed as a question. Which one among you, having 100 sheep, story, 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 is the 99 who don't need to repent? Now this is a bit of my own interpretation, but I can imagine the pause. Now these are guys who know all of the Old Testament sheep and shepherd metaphors by heart. Why? Because it's about them. They're supposed to be the shepherds. They know the one sheep of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He takes care of me. They know the lost flock of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, the good and bad shepherds of Ezekiel 34. They know Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We all have turned away, everyone to his own way. I mean, this is like asking a Gordon Conwell theological professor in systematic theology, who's fallen short of the glory of God? <laughs> this is not a hard question. All. All. I mean, you can picture this. Shall we have a raise of hands? Which among you is in no need of repentance? Jesus asks. Which among you is in no need of repentance. The silence is deafening. The point is, none. The 99 becomes zero. There's a reason they disappear in the story. There's a reason. It's not the plot. It's not the point. They're left in the wilderness, in the high country, as Matthew's version says. They're left. And as soon as we begin to focus on them, those people, grumble, grumble, self-righteous people, those people, you're the one wandering off. You're not in the fold. The point is not the 99. The point is there's such, no such thing as the 99. We are all only brought near in our realization of our brokenness and our repentance, our turning back around to God. I love how the Bible Sense Lexicon puts this. This is a great definition of repentance, turning back. A change of self, heart and mind, that abandons former dispositions and results in a new self, new behavior, and regret over former behavior and dispositions. It's holistic. It's heart, mind, behavior, and patterns. And I would add that leads to a restoration and even transformation of relationships and community. 
which these pa this passage, these three stories so beautifully exemplify. We can see it happens in steps sometimes with the younger son in the prodigal story. Remember, he's out feeding the pigs. He's lost everything. He squandered his father's inheritance, and he's just down to nothing. And, this, and in English, it says oftentimes, he comes to his senses. The original language says he returns into himself. There's that middle voice again. And so he turns around and he comes back. But that's not the full repentance. That's the first step of repentance. But as he's coming back, he's rehearsing in his head. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I'll be a servant so I can at least get fed. He recognizes who his father is in terms of what he has for him. But does he recognize who his father is in terms of who his father is? And he gets there and he starts that spiel that he's rehearsed in his head. And he's like, I've sinned against heaven and earth. And his father's just like, whoop. You're still trying to earn it. And he, welcome, he embraces him, and he puts on the family signet ring and the coat of inheritance, and he says, this son, that's who you are, not my servant, this son. And that's where that picture of repentance comes all the way through, a restoration of who he truly is based on his understanding of who his father is. No such thing as 99 who need no repentance. All right, so we do the math again. So I'm supposed to be the wandering one? I'm supposed to want to wander? We don't have to want to wander. Let me parse this out with one of my favorite examples of this. I heard this this week from a good friend of mine. His name is Neil. He, he lives in South Africa. Let me give you a quick backstory on Neil so this makes sense. He is... Uh, New Hampshire tough, gruff, and gritty. He can be loud, boisterous, strict. In his own words, not always so gracious. But he is an amazing father. And he's present with his three sons. And I've learned a ton from him. I've stolen some of his language for how he weaves in the gospel to his parenting. How he blesses his kids all the time and every night. But he can be strict. And as they're leaving, they're leaving, their, they're leaving a school, sorry, to another school. His son wrote an appreciation note to his teacher. His son's name is Ben. And he writes a note to his teacher, which the teacher then sent back to Neil. I think just to show him what a really young, considerate, compassionate, articulate young man his son was, which he already knew. And here's what the, here's what the letter said. Dear Mr. Steve, you have been my favorite teacher ever. You make me want to come to school because you lighten up the class. You've taught me so many things that I will remember for all of my life. Now listen, here's what he says. Some teachers think to teach children, you must be strict or shout a lot. But I think you got it right. Thank you for one of the best years of my life. Now, Neil's telling me this story. Remember, gritty, 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 gutty, gruff New Hampshire. And he says, my first emotions as I read this were envy. And he says, who is this bum? Give my life for my kid. I'm with him every single day. He's never written a note like that about me. 
this man, this son of yours, who's this bum? Far. He says, then the sharp conviction set in. And he knew exactly who his son was referring to indirectly when he says, strict and yell or shout. And he did this as he was telling me. And not like those dingy talk shows, pick me, pick me, pick me, but it was me. I'm the one. And this conviction set in, and he realized that he was far. God had put up the mirror and showed him how far he'd gone. And he broke down and he begged God for forgiveness, to grow and to change into one who would more graciously love his son. And as he wept, in this distance, he felt the good shepherd drawing near. And tears of repentance turned to tears of gratitude as he began to realize God is carrying him. And he does love him enough to show him who he is, who he's been to his son, how his son experiences him, and how he can grow and change. And that he loves him enough to not let him stay far. And he couldn't keep it to himself. Now, when Benny came home, Neil greets him with such joy. He yells, Benny! Oh, no, more yelling. <laughs> Benny's probably like, oh, no. <laughs> and he brings him in, and he says, Benny, come here. Benny, come here. Let's praise our good and perfect Father who sent to you, Mr. Steve, who sent to you a man who could teach you with the grace and graciousness that I don't have who could point to you towards the good Father in a way that I haven't done in my life. Let's praise him together. Benny says, okay. <laughs> Let's pray. When we realize that we're the one, it overflows in rejoicing and brought back relationship. And it doesn't always have to be one of those Mama, mama, drama, drama, Damien stories, rush of emotion and spiritual high. It can be as simple as just acknowledging our need for God and asking for forgiveness. And that needs to be our breath and our life. But it can also come in seasons and clusters. And that's how it's been for me the last couple of weeks. And I am at the place, and I want to be at the place where I can say, God, you are marking me for a lifetime of change. Because I have a secret for you, Park Street. I pray that this word from the Lord would be a word for you. But I'm the one. He's shown me this week. I'm the one who wanders, and I have wandered in every direction. I have grumbled in my spirit, and even with my words, those people that kid, and judging them have judged Jesus and his welcome of them. And I've had arguments in my head and tried to prove myself or vindicate my position or invalidate others or disprove them, and it's taken up loads of my heart space and my head space, and if you crawled in there, I would be humiliated by how pervasive it is. I'm the one. And I'm the one who's been forgiven and brought back and scooped up on his shoulders. And I can hear his voice carrying in my ears as I learn it and attune to it as he carries the weight of the situation that I can't bear. 
So you get the image, right? The shepherd goes out and finds a scared, frightened, could be injured, frozen, paralyzed sheep. Doesn't rebuke it, but graciously, gently lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. I used to read this like the rejoicing only happens when he gets back. He rejoices all the way home. And the sheep is hearing his voice as he goes, learning it, listening to it, near to hear. No room for talk. I'm the one. Lord, please carry me home and carry us home. We're the one. How do we get to we? How do we get to we? We're the one. In this passage, it looks like there's only one sheep wandering. And how do we get to we without accusing another one, by, without saying you're the one? Are we supposed to not grumble? Jesus doesn't call it the lost flock, but it's in the background. And I tell you who sees it. I tell you who knows it. The scribes and Pharisees. They know it. When it says the bad shepherds who have led them astray, who do you think they are feeling? They know. It's like if I'm with a meeting of pastors and somebody says, one of my flock has gone off and it's just kind of gone astray. I don't know how to bring him back. I don't think, that guy's a sheep farmer? Am I supposed to be? No, I know exactly what he's talking about. It's the context of which we live and work and are called. These guys know the context that Jesus is speaking in. Jeremiah 50, verses 6 and 7, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they've gone, they've wandered. They have forgotten their fold. We are all lost together. We have forgotten our fold, our shepherd's voice. We need our good shepherd. What does it look like to reach out and extend the nearness of Christ when we think we're all far? It needs to start with me. We can only get to we by first starting with me. When I say, I'm the one, and you say, I'm the one, and I look around and say, I'm the one too, and you look at me and say, I'm the one too, and that's a lot different than you're the one. And we are brought together in a sense of recognition of our brokenness and our need for him to bring us back. And that's what we're trying to do this Friday by inviting you to come and pray. This time of listening, the ministers have done, we've done work to try and continue to do work to try and repent and listen to God's voice in this. And we pray that we would be listening to your voices and praying with you together. As Nehemiah laments for and confesses the sin of his people, himself, and his father's house, repentance is crucial to lament and lament to healing and healing and restoration. We're the ones. And many of you might be saying, I, I'm not sure this is the word that I ordered for this week. I mean, it has been a difficult couple weeks right now. Wars upon wars have broken out in the world. What's going on in Israel is heavy. Are we teetering on the brink of war? There is dissonance in my community. It is heavy. I kind of wanted to come and hear a word of comfort and reassurance. I didn't want to be told I was far. 
I want her to be brought back near. Me too. And he's the one. He's the one. See, this is the part I pray that would ring so true and shine so bright right now, that Jesus, as the good shepherd who gave up everything for his sheep, is the one who will bring me back, who's the one who will bring us back. He's the one, the one who counts the sheep every night and knows if even one is missing, bullied, abandoned. And if that's how you feel, that's him. He's the one. He's the one that goes after the wandering, the broken, the scattered, the scared, and puts them on his shoulders, carries them as they learn to listen to his voice. If that's you, that's him. He's the one. He's the one that scours, sweeps, cleans, and removes like the dear woman looking for the coin. Everything in our lives, in our hearts, in our household, in the world, including death, that would block us or keep, him, keep us from him. And if that's you, and that's me, that's him. He's that one. And he's the one who embraces us as sons and daughters, falls on our neck, clothes us in belonging, beckons us in with you are always with me. Everything I have is yours because I've given everything for you. You're mine. That's who you are. This is your home. Come in with me. And if that's where you are, he's the one. The good shepherd who lays down his life who's given everything for us on the cross, will not give up. He will bring his sheep back to himself in loving, restored, and repentant, joyful relationship. Because that's who he is. Loving relationship. That's who he is. It has been a difficult time for us. And I recognize people feel all over the map on this from crushed to fed up. But he has not changed. He is carrying us, I believe this, on his shoulders and reassuring us with his whisper voice. He's bringing us back to himself and home together. I'm the one in need. We are the ones in need. He's the one who brings us back home healed together. Let's pray. Good shepherd, lover of our soul, perfect father, thank you that you bring us back. Thank you that you're carrying us. Thank you for your word that is your voice that is near, even when we're far. Thank you for your healing. Thank you for the life that we have in you. Thank you that you're here. Help us be near to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.